0: express of my family and myself, uh, our sincere thanks for everything you, you did for us the the gift of the, the flowers uh, last week and the cards uh, it 's such a joy. Uh, my wife and I we sit down and go through them, we read every card and uh, your words are so kind and we, uh, we feel really loved and appreciated uh, by this body and it is a I mean this, it is a joy to serve with you. And so let's, let's keep moving forward in faithfulness to Jesus, our King, and keep the gospel right in the center of everything we do. And I look forward to great things. God is already doing great things in our midst, and I'm just looking forward to seeing more of it, and I hope you are too. Uh, let's get to the Word, though. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue on in John, and the question before us this morning is why is it that so many people reject Christianity if it's such good news? Here's one thought. Perhaps what many people reject is not true Christianity at all, but some caricature, <clears throat> a, uh, a culturally or politically infused shell of what true Christianity should be with all the religious trappings. Perhaps uh, they reject a Christianity that any true Christian who loves Jesus would also reject. So maybe it's, it's misrepresented. Uh, there are, however, many who do reject true Christianity. Some are outright atheists while others invent their own mysticism or spirituality. You may have even had this experience. Maybe you've, been, you've shared the gospel with someone and, and, and you thought that you've shared it so clearly and you're thinking, why don't they get it? Why don't they, they believe? You're so sure that you answered all their questions and explained things so clearly. You've shown how the gospel is truly good news and yet they continue in disbelief. Why is that? Is the solution that you need a new tool? or method for sharing your faith, maybe, but not necessarily. Then there are some who disbelieve who are former pastors, Christian authors. Some have even played in big name Christian bands and yet have walked away from the faith they once professed or even Openly oppose it. This can be extremely difficult to understand. How can someone so entrenched in the truth reject it? Belief and unbelief are major themes that run all throughout John's gospel, and this theme appears again here in our text this morning. So let's go to our text and see how our text addresses this this issue. Uh, Please turn with me to John chapter 10, Verses 22 to 42. If you're using a Pew Bible, you'll find that text on page 1065. Once you're there, I invite you to stand with me if you're able and follow along with me as I read out of respect for God's Word. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken... Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Let's pray. Your law, O Lord, is perfect. Reviving the soul, your word is sure, O God, able to make wise even the simplest of us. Father, may your Holy Spirit move in our hearts to make us wise this morning that we may see Jesus clearly and exalt him together. Amen. You can be seated. So John gives us a detail here at the very beginning of our text that Jesus is walking in the temple at the time of the Feast of Dedication. This is a celebration that you are familiar with. It's what we know now today as Hanukkah. And in 167 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes uh, overran Jerusalem and desecrated the temple by setting up a pagan altar in the temple. But then in 164 BC, under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus, the Jews mustered their, their strength, overthrew their oppressors, took back the temple, and reconsecrated it to the Lord. And now this eight-day celebration remembers these events But as is the case with Jesus, all the feasts that we've seen him attend in John, he will show how he is the fulfillment of all that this festival points to. And we're going to see that this morning. Jesus will address the unbelief of a group of unbelieving Jews that will reveal the anatomy, really, of unbelief. But he will... Also do this while shedding light on himself as the true fulfillment of the feast of dedication. So we're going to look at that together. Let's consider now three aspects of unbelief from our text. The first one is reasons. Reasons for unbelief. The question that they asked Jesus in verse 24 seems innocent enough. This could be a great opportunity for Jesus to set the record straight and explain everything clearly. Here they are asking, tell us plainly so that we can uh, believe. However, this word around in verse 24 is used elsewhere in the scriptures to describe an encircling army. So you kind of get a sense of what's going on here. And the question put to Jesus how long will you keep us in suspense? This question can also be rendered in the Greek as something like, How long are you going to annoy us? I think we need to understand that these Jews are looking to trap Jesus. And now, to be sure, Jesus only claimed to be the Messiah once in John's Gospel, and it's in chapter 4. But this was a private conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. And I think that Jesus avoided openly connecting the title of Messiah to himself because there were far too many political and military overtones associated with that title that existed in the minds of many Jews And certainly now, during the Feast of Dedication that remembers a a political, military victory at the hands of Judas Maccabeus, he's going to be especially careful to to, uh, not draw too close a connection publicly for that reason. But notice something here. These Jews are blaming Jesus for not being clear enough. They're saying that their unbelief is actually Jesus' fault. How long will you keep us in suspense, Jesus? It's your fault we don't understand. You gotta be more clear. But look how he obliterates this excuse in verse 25. Jesus says, I have told you, and you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. I mean, consider for a moment everything we've covered from John 1 to the point where we are today in John 10, consider some of the works. Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding in chapter 2 to show that he would purify his people from their sin. And in zeal for the temple in chapter 2, he he drove out the money changers and pointed to himself as the true temple. John the Baptist testified that Jesus was the Messiah in chapter 3. And Jesus instantly healed the official's son from a distance in chapter 4 with just a word. In chapter 5, Jesus healed a man who had been lame for 38 years. And then he calls God his father and claims a different title for the Messiah that we find in the book of Daniel, the son of man. And then in chapter 6, Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 men, walked on water, and called himself the bread of life. And in chapter 7, Jesus applied the imagery of the Feast of Booths to himself when he called the crowds to come to him and receive living water. In chapter 8, Jesus applies another image from the Feast of Booths to himself when he declares himself to be the light of the world. And at the end of chapter, the chapter, he applies the divine name to himself, I am. In chapter nine, Jesus heals the man born blind. And in chapter 10, Jesus applies the messianic promise of the good shepherd to himself, I think that these Jews already knew what Jesus was claiming to be. Jesus' works and words have made his identity clear. These Jews just need him to openly admit it in public so they can string him up on blasphemy charges. They need him to, to say it. Say plainly, Jesus, what we know so clearly from your works. Say it plainly. So again, their problem is not lack of information, but it's spiritual blindness. So from a human perspective, their problem is that they are unwilling to believe. They're unwilling. But Jesus adds a second reason here that they don't believe. And it's this. It's the divine perspective. Verse 26 says that they don't believe because they are not one of his sheep. Some have tried to read this verse to mean that the reason they are not one of Jesus's sheep is because they don't believe, but this is not what Jesus says. He's very clear. Your belief does not make you one of his sheep. You believe because you already are one of his sheep. And the way you become one of his sheep, verse 29 says, is that you are first given to Jesus by the Father. And this should humble us because it shows so clearly our complete inability to save ourselves unless God gives us the ability to hear Jesus' voice. We must realize that our utter helplessness apart from Jesus we are utterly helpless to turn to him on our own. This truth is pictured in the miracles that bookend this teaching. In chapter nine, what we've seen already is a blind man who could not make himself see. So Jesus had to give him sight. And what we'll see in chapter 11 is that Jesus' friend Lazarus was dead. He could not make himself alive. So, Jesus raises him to life again. And in the same way, a blind, dead sinner cannot save himself, cannot give himself sight, cannot give himself light. Only God can save. Now, discussions of human responsibility and divine sovereignty have made many uncomfortable here. And some have created a false dichotomy when it comes to our salvation, that it's got to be more one than the other. But notice that for Jesus, there's no tension here. Both human responsibility and divine sovereignty are intertwined here without any tension. We must never use divine sovereignty as an excuse Not to evangelize. Just the opposite. It should motivate us because Jesus' sheep are out there and they will come to him when they hear the gospel call. To change the metaphor a little bit, if you know anything about me, uh, you know that I'm, I'm not a big fisherman. And the reason for that is because as a kid, I went a few times with my dad or some friends and I never caught a single fish. Anyone have that experience? Yeah? You just kind of give up on it? I decided it wasn't worth my time. But the fact that Jesus has sheep that have been given to him by the Father who will come to him when they hear his call, it's like being given a fishing rod and told that the pond is stocked and that while there's some fish who won't bite, there are many who will. That would motivate me to go fishing as often as I could. And it should motivate our evangelism, knowing that Jesus' sheep are out there and they need to hear the gospel call to come to him. And God, what what an incredible thing it is that God chooses to use us as a means in that process to extend that call to people to come to him. However, when people reject our evangelistic efforts, we should not... Give up on them. We don't have divine omniscience like Jesus. But Jesus didn't give up on them either. We see in verse 38 after they have already rejected him, he again mercifully, graciously calls them to believe. We are not all knowing like Jesus. It's not for us to know who his sheep are or not. We must persist and sharing the gospel because it may just not be their time. And this is also incredibly freeing because while God chooses to use us as the means to extend the gospel call to others, we are not responsible for the results. We are responsible only to faithfully share the gospel. And when when someone does respond we don't pat ourselves on the back. We praise God, knowing that the blind have been given sight and that the dead have been given life. We've been part of a miracle in someone's life. It's that One of Jesus' sheep has, has heard the call of the good shepherd and has come to him. And so this is the first aspect of unbelief. Those who continue in unbelief do so because they are unwilling and because they're not one of Jesus' sheep. Now let's consider Uh, this next aspect of unbelief, consequences of unbelief. And the consequences can be seen here as we look at the reverse of these beautiful promises that Jesus uh, gives to his sheep. First, verse 28 says that those who believe are given eternal life that is undeserved. You will never be separated from God. And will be free to enjoy his presence forever. That's a gift given to the sheep. But the opposite of this is that those who persist in unbelief will be cut off from God forever. And death is their destiny. They will never taste the abundant life that Jesus offers. And secondly, here, Jesus promises in verse 28 that no one. No one will snatch them from out of his hands. So if it is Jesus who saves you, then it is Jesus who will keep you and never let you go. If Jesus makes you alive, then you will never die again. And if it's Jesus who gives you sight, you will never go blind again. If Jesus adopts you, you will never be lonely again. If Jesus takes you into his hands, he will never let you go. This rich truth should bring believers tremendous encouragement, comfort, and hope. If Jesus calls you and takes you into his mighty hands, he will keep you and nothing will pull you away from him. I love these words from the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. Through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But why is it that we are so secure in Jesus' hands? He tells us in verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them from out of the father's hand. And he adds in verse 30 that he and the father are one. This means that the hands of Jesus that claim us and keep us are not the feeble hands of of a mere human. They are divine. He and the father are one if the Father holds on to you, so Jesus holds on to you. Recently, I was doing some chores around the house and I had to move a large window air conditioner unit from our top deck down the stairs, get it into the garage. This thing's massive. I'm standing there and my son Lincoln's there with me because he's, he's the helper, right? That's his age, three. He likes to help Dad. So I'm standing there, and I'm looking at this big air conditioner. Not only is it heavy, it's just awkward. It's really big. It's hard to get your hands around it. And I said out loud, I said, Link, how, how am I going to do this? And he looks up at me, and he says, with your mighty hands. <laughs> Actually, he said, with your hands. And then he followed up, with your mighty hands. Um, I love his confidence in his dad. But I know there was a good chance I could drop that on my foot if I didn't get some help. But not so with the Father's hands, which are truly mighty. J.C. Ryle describes the encouragement this gives us. He comments on, on John here. He says, Christ declares that his people will never perish Weak as they are, they will all be saved. Not one of them shall be lost and cast away. Not one of them shall miss heaven. If they err, they shall be brought back. If they fall, they shall be raised. The enemies of their soul may be strong and mighty, but their Savior is mightier, and none shall pluck them out of their Savior's hand. Of course, Jesus' claim to be one with the Father enrages the Jews to the point of trying to kill him. Now for the third time, if you've been keeping track as we go through John's Gospel, this is the third time now they're wanting to kill him. And Jesus could have walked away. But he sticks around. He sticks around long enough to appeal for belief one more time. This time he exposes the folly of their unbelief. And this is our last aspect of unbelief that we'll look at this morning, the folly of unbelief. And their unbelief is folly because they ignore two things. They ignore Jesus' works and they they ignore God's word, okay? These are the two things. In verse 32, Jesus asks the Jews, I have shown you many good works from the Father, For which of them are you going to stone me? Now, it's helpful to understand here, the Greek word for good carries this idea of something, not just merely being good, but that it's something beautiful. It's something that's praiseworthy. Uh, and, And I think to illustrate this, think for a moment with me, if Rembrandt, that famous artist, went back to kindergarten And on his report card, he got A's in every subject except for art. He got an F in art. He goes to his teacher. The walls of the classroom are covered with mere finger paintings and scribbles from his fellow kindergarten students. And he spreads his work out on the teacher's desk, and he asks For which of these beautiful masterpieces did I fail your class? And so Jesus, living in a broken, godless world, where every action of his was not only blameless, but it was beautiful, it was praiseworthy, He's opened the eyes of the blind. He's made the lame to walk. He's saying, in effect, effect, which of these beautiful works, which of these masterpieces is the reason you want to stone me? It's folly. And Jesus pleads with them to believe that he and the Father are one, if for nothing else, than for the evidence of his masterpieces. But these men are so spiritually blind that they cannot see the utter beauty and glory of the sun on full display right in front of their faces. They're like a person who visits the Grand Canyon and is so fascinated by the potholes in the parking lot that they can't see one of the great wonders of the world. Their religion so full of man-made requirements designed to impress God is worthless before Jesus. A religion that, that would kill a man for causing the lame to walk and the blind to see. They are truly blind to the beauty of Jesus. So they've ignored his works. But secondly, they've ignored God's word. These Jews want to stone Jesus because he claims to be God. But Jesus points out that the folly of their unbelief has caused them to ignore the scriptures. Jesus says in verse 34, it is, it, or rather, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scriptures cannot be broken? Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated? And sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Now this is truly amazing. Jesus is making an argument from the lesser to the greater here. And he begins by quoting from Psalm 82, which says this, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. And in verse 7, he continues on, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Now, most scholars believe that these gods referred to the nation of Israel to whom the word of God came. That's what Jesus says. To whom the word of God came on Mount Sinai after the exodus from their slavery in Egypt. But they're called gods here not because they're literal deities, beca- but because as God's chosen people, they were sent to represent him to the world and to be a blessing to it. But this they fail to do, which is why they die. Almost immediately after this event, the Israelites disobeyed by worshiping a golden calf, and later they would rebel again by failing to enter the promised land. And the consequence was that this generation would die out in the wilderness and never enter the promised land. And so Jesus's from lesser to the greater argument here goes like this. If those who acted unjustly and failed to represent God in the world were called sons of God, how is it inappropriate for Jesus, who literally came from God, to call himself the Son of God? They can only condemn Jesus if they foolishly brush aside the Scriptures, which cannot be broken. Now consider Jesus' words here in the context of this festival, the festival of dedication. That Remember, it celebrates the the re-consecration of the temple. And see how this points, to how Jesus uses this to point to himself. In verse 36, Jesus identifies himself as the consecrated one. The consecrated one sent by the Father into the world to be the most perfect representation of God to mankind. He is the one that this festival points to. Jesus wasn't a man who made himself God, as they claimed, but just the opposite. Jesus is God who made himself man by adding a complete human nature to his divine nature. They had it completely backwards. And because of this, Jesus is fully man who could represent us before God. He represents God to man, and he represents man to God. That's why it's so significant that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. And Jesus, because he was fully man, could represent us before God and consecrate us to him by dying and rising again in our place as the only perfect payment for our sin. This is why Jesus did for you. This is what he did for you to claim you, to keep you as one of his sheep. You need only to believe to believe in Jesus, to be saved. Believe that he died and rose again to save you from your sin, to give you eternal life. And today, if you hear his voice calling you, calling out to your soul, come to him. Come to him and receive forgiveness and have eternal life. Do not persist in unbelief. Come to Jesus and you will never fear the future because the basis of your security is in the hands of Jesus. It's not in your 401k. It's not in your physical health. It's not in your good works, but in the mighty hands of Jesus who claims you and who keeps you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you have called us from out of darkness into the wonderful light of your kingdom. Father, we thank you uh, for the many here who have heard your voice and have, have answered the call to come and believe on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you that Jesus is the consecrated one sent by the Father to represent perfectly God to man. And because he was fully man, represents man to God when he died on the cross in our place to consecrate us to the Father. Father, may we live lives worthy of the gospel because of these truths. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, let's all stand and sing songs.